Good evening and welcome to Monergy Life. This is your host, Robert Fisher, and I have the great pleasure tonight of welcoming on the show Mark Monchek, who's had a very interesting uh, career, uh, starting out as a psychotherapist and moving into the area of um, consulting work with corporations for strategic management and development. Most recently, Mark has developed something called the Opportunity Lab, which is something I'm very curious about. And while we're waiting for Mark to call in, uh, we'll just talk about briefly. From what I understand, and of course, Mark will give us more information when he calls in, uh, the Opportunity Lab is, is a vehicle in which individuals and corporations can submit to basically what the two-month process to really maximize the um, the connections and the potential that they already have. Uh, from what he has told me, it seems to be about you know building an awareness of uh, things that are already existing uh, that could be of advantage to uh, to the parties. And um, as I said, Mark is should be calling in any moment. And, uh, as we'll wait. Uh, let me also say that, uh, hold on, this might be him. Mark, is that you? That's me, Robert. Okay, you came up as, on my switchboard, you came up as unknown for some reason, um, uh, which I had a feeling it was you, so I took a while to guess and put you on the air. <laughs> you guessed right. You, you, you made the right opportunity. I see. Uh, we were just talking about um, the opportunity. Uh, I was giving the listeners a brief rundown, um, very brief, because you just called in pretty much on time. And, um, you know, I want to thank you for being on the show. And how are you this evening, by the way? I'm very grateful to be here and uh, appreciate the invitation. Very excited to talk to our audience about how we think about opportunity and how we can change the way we think about opportunity in the world and create some more abundance for people who want to do good in the world. Well, those uh, it sounds like a very worthy platform, uh, especially given the fast-changing environment that most people find themselves in today in the workplace. Uh, before we get into that, Mark, um, we spoke uh, before a few days ago, and I I was very impressed with what you what got you in this direction in the first place, uh, in terms of your background with your dad. Would you like to share with the listeners um, his story before we get into the specifics of the opportunity lab? Uh, I would love to, because this is really a gateway to understanding how I think about opportunity and how we at the Opportunity Lab think about opportunity in the most adverse situations. So my father was born in 1909, and he lived through most of the 20th century. And when he was growing up, there was a Jewish quota in the United States. He was Jewish. He was a straight-A student in high school, straight-A student in college. Uh, his dream was to go to medical school and become a doctor. And he was not admitted to any school in the United States. And so under that adversary, he, adversity, he could have given up. He could have done something else. And he decided that he was going to take that adversity and create an opportunity. So he decided he was going to go to Austria he was going to study in Vienna, and he was going to become a doctor studying in German. Now imagine 
the obstacles of doing that. And back then, it took three weeks to get there by boat, and he didn't even have enough money to be able to complete his school straight through, you know, the four years in a row. So he went for one year, he studied, he got uh, straight A's, came back, he worked in the post office, and he earned enough money to finally graduate, and he actually graduated in Switzerland because Hitler invaded um, Austria in 1938, and he had to escape, uh, finished his medical school in um, Switzerland, and then came back and became a doctor here in the United States. So I was always deeply impressed by that incredible courage that he had to do that. Now, why did he why did he pick Austria as a, as a place? I mean, uh, he and Sigmund Freud might have been there around the same time, actually. Uh, he was in, in Vienna at the same time that Freud was doing his greatest work. Um, he uh, grew up in a family that spoke Yiddish and some German. He studied German in high school and in college. He was fluent in German. So that was the probably the country that had the best medical school where he, he knew the language. So there was sort of a convergence of, of factors at that time. And that's, again, how people see opportunities. They see the things the, that they have, the assets and the resources. They see where there's a demand, and they put them together, and they create the opportunity. Right. But just imagine the courage in uh, picking himself up from the United States. And did he do this alone, or was he married at the time to your mom? Um, he did it alone. But when you say alone, nobody ever really does anything great alone. So back then, they had what they called Lanzmann societies, where uh, Jews who came over from Eastern Europe, they had um, sort of what we think of as social clubs or networking groups back then, and they would support each other by raising money for them to bring their family members over from Europe, getting people jobs, helping people go to college. So he had his own family, and the Lanzmann Society had helped him uh, get enough money plus the jobs that he had to be able to go to school and complete his education. So basically a group of people in the community helped support this effort. Yeah, and part of the message that we why we tell that story is because nobody ever does anything alone, and the only way you create great opportunities and do good things in the world is by seeing the people around you and supporting them and them supporting you. And, you know, we live in a world where... Yeah, no, I, 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 I just want to start you with that thought for one second. And do you believe that what you just said is the common ethos of people in business today? I think more and more it is becoming a more accepted ethos. I think for many years we thought of um, successful businesses as competitive businesses. We thought of... Um, people in the same business as competing against one another for better salaries, better promotions, better opportunities. And I think that world of business is ending, and the new world of business is really about collaboration, co-creation, and finding opportunities that can help one another and help the community, help the environment, and, and help the world as a whole. Right. I, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, I just wonder if um, – I wonder when that idea, that ethos is going to filter down to most people's individual behavior because I still think that we live in a very self-oriented society. You know, this, you know, this is a pure form of capitalism and, 
you know, restri restrictions are there to capitalism in this country, but sometimes it seems as though the restrictions are just uh, uh, just a facade and that people end up doing what they want to do just to enrich themselves. What do you think of that? I think that's true to a large extent. However, I see so many exceptions to that, and I'm so hopeful about the social enterprise form of business that's that's growing up in the world today. So if you think about the most successful businesses that have um, have really really exploded and expanded and, and improved since 2008, since we've had the worst financial crisis then mm -hmm. since the depression, there are companies like Google, companies like Apple, companies like Amazon, companies like eBay, um, like Netflix, even Walmart, um, and you see how how they've shifted the business model. Um, so let's take a company like Walmart, who was probably thought of as the greatest evildoer of American corporations you know, over the last 30 years. And they have significantly changed their environmental practices to the point that by 2014, they're requiring every single one of their vendors to be carbon neutral. They have put several hundred million dollars into marketing and promoting um, energy-efficient uh, light bulbs, just that one particular product. Um, they've been sued about their um, labor practices towards women, and they've had to significantly change uh, opportunities for women in the workplace as well as opportunities for people to move up to management positions, uh, people of color and different diverse backgrounds. So even a company like Walmart, which was probably the most criticized uh, company in America for its labor and environmental practices, has made some significant shifts. If you see what's happened with Apple, just over the last month, uh, in its practices in the global supply chain and some of the changes they made in being more transparent about who their vendors are, about uh, applying fair labor practices in China. I'm very hopeful that these things, really driven by the American consumer's greater social awareness, is making business a much more positive force for change in, in the world. Well, I'm, I'm with you in that hope. I certainly uh, hope that you know, the companies you mentioned can can lead other companies that way. Uh, and certainly since 2008, when the so-called recession has hit, um, it's, it's certainly uh, shaken things up a lot for not just businesses, but a lot of individuals who have been tossed out of one situation to find that they need to create something totally new from what's available to them. Yes, and that's that's been a tragic situation for so many millions of people who've been out of work. And when I was growing up, the the ideal for the American corporation was to create more jobs, to create more opportunities, and to employ the most number of people and to be able to give those people the version of the American dream. And to now, now corporations want to hire the least number of people, and they don't seem to have a sense about uh, building this country uh, through hiring more people. So we do have a jobs crisis in the United States. On the other hand, we have 3 million jobs that are available that we cannot fill. Because we have a, a challenge of adult literacy, we have a serious adult illiteracy problem in the United States, and we have a skills issue that people are not very well trained in many cases to take on the new kinds of jobs that we're seeing in, in the new economy. So we definitely have to address those kinds of things. Um, and we got to make people really more aware of how to see opportunities in the job market, even when the, the job market is, a, is an adverse one. Right. You know, you mentioned earlier that um, the changes that have occurred in the last 
uh, three or four years have thrown a lot of people out of work. And, you know, you, you, ter- you termed it as a tragic situation. You know, I don't know that I would label it as such because uh, who knows out of those people who lost their jobs, how many people hated their jobs, who knows what opportunities were unleashed for those people that they actually, you know, were forced to pursue their dream dream instead of staying in a job that they hated. You know, it's really, it's a very tough call. You know, I think we automatically attach a negative connotation to these types of changes, but, you know, who knows if it ultimately is negative. It's really hard to say. Well, I don't see it as negative or positive. I, what, the reason why I use the word tragic is I think there was very, very little attention paid to the impact on people and their families when companies laid off workers. And I think right. we as a, as a culture have abandoned the whole idea of the safety net. So on the other hand, I think that you're absolutely right. There are some people who are thriving now and who, who are much happier and in much more meaningful jobs because they were sort of forced to create a change for themselves. So right. I don't think it's good or bad. I think it's really a, a reality that we have to accept and learn how to deal with better and learn how to help each other um, find where the jobs are, be trained for them, and help entrepreneurial companies add the jobs, which is really where the growth in the economy is coming from today. I totally agree with you. And I would just add one more thing before we get into um, more of your background and more of what you do, that I think the whole notion of the American dream is being rearranged forcefully um, and involuntarily maybe for some people. But, you know, that so-called American dream, you know, really used up such a vast disproportionate number of resources to sustain it compared to how other cultures you know, had their people pursue their dreams. And, you know, to a very large extent, that American dream embodied, material, you know, material accumulation and unlimited material accumulation, which, of course, for many factors now is out of reach of many people, but also took a vast toll on the environment. So, uh, you know, that so-called American dream perhaps needed to be revamped, and uh, maybe that's a good thing, too. Oh, absolutely. And... You're, you're totally right that there was such a lacking of consciousness about the impact on the environment. And today you're, you're seeing companies that are transacting business in a very different way. And so when people think about the most important, the most impactful environmental companies, uh, who, who do we think about? Uh, we don't think about companies like Netflix or companies like eBay uh, as environmental companies, but when you think about it, you know, eBay has created 700,000 businesses for people who work at home who don't have to typically commute and, and you know, add to the carbon footprint. Um, and they're transacting business in a way that was not possible 20 years ago. You know, Netflix right. pretty much put Blockbuster out of business, and, and people are transacting through streaming, which is uh, environmentally carbon neutral, through um, using the mails, which is – still has an impact in the environment, but a whole lot less so than running to the video store back and forth and using your car. So there's, there's just a lot of positive things going on with companies that are rethinking about how to, how to be sustainable in the environment. I totally agree with that. And, um, you know, I'm amazed when I look around at people that I know and see how people react so differently to changes in their life. Uh, it is truly something that is incredible. And, 
you know, uh, there's so much to be learned by by observing and watching other people uh, because hopefully we won't repeat the mistakes that other people are making. And we'll try and look at things, you know, in terms of uh, change in a positive way. You know, what's being created here versus focusing on what's being lost, which is the way a lot of people are conditioned to address these things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I agree. That's a good point. And uh, so let's let's uh, get back to you, Mark, since uh, you're the guest tonight. Um, so tell me, how did you, uh, apart from your dad's story, which is really pretty amazing and quite an inspiration to hear, um, what got you involved in opportunity? What's your background? Well, you know, my father was um, the only person in my life that was not involved in a business. So he was a professional, and my uncles and my grandfather all had businesses. They all had entrepreneurial businesses. So I really didn't know anybody growing up who had a job, per se, who worked for somebody else. And I was always fascinated with how people grow businesses, why are some businesses successful and other businesses not, and how do businesses see the right opportunities and be able to take those opportunities and make them work for them and, and realize the, the business potential to grow. Right. Um, so that's since I was a little kid, I was always looking at every single company I could study, and worked in the in, worked in my grandfather's and my father's uh, uh, brother's company, and I learned enormous amount about how to see opportunities, how to look at the marketplace, and then when um, when I was old enough to try to fulfill the American dream for myself, my my wife and I bought a house in Brooklyn, and our dream was to own the home. To it was an old home, we wanted to restore it. You know. Had a, had a good job myself at that point. And then somebody, six days after we moved in, tried to burn our house down. It was an arson fire. Not kidding. This, this is my own story of adversity. So imagine um, you're, you're in a house six days, you haven't even unpacked, um, haven't even really gotten settled in the neighborhood, and your house is, is burnt almost to the ground. Was um, this a random act, or it was directed at you personally? Did you ever find out, like the person who um, did it? You know, one of the tragedies of, of an arson fire is you typically never know who did it or why they did it. So right. uh, the only guess that I have that's, that's legitimate is that the people who were in it before, the, the husband of the couple that owned the home was a lawyer for the American, uh, the, the, sorry, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And the, the theory that we had was that somebody thought that he was still living in the house and was trying to get at him for some controversial case that he was in. But we really didn't know. So imagine somebody who tried to burn your house down and maybe was trying to actually get at you, and so you had to live with that reality uh, you know, forever and pretty much had to kind of deal with that psychologically, which was extremely difficult. And then within um, three weeks of the fire, we had three burglaries, and they came in in the middle of the night. They stole four uh, fireplaces, antique hand-carved fireplaces, stained glass windows, and pretty much anything valuable in the house. So well, we you moved were there. back into this house. We were not there. The house was the house was not really very inhabitable. It was we had right. no heat, no hot water, uh, we had no windows, uh, we had no kitchen. Um, but we actually moved back in after the third burglary, and we decided we were going to stick it out, and we were going to make this house uh, a home again, and we were going to you know restore it. So right. we moved into the house with no heat, no hot water, no electricity, no windows, no cooking facilities. 
and it took us six years, and we, we restored it back to its original condition. We put the fireplace mantles back. We put the stained glass windows back, and we rebuilt our life, um, only with the help of our friends and uh, grace or God or whatever you want to call the higher power that, that gave us the courage to be able to see this as an opportunity and not as uh, something that would defeat us. Well, that's an incredible story. And were you working as a psychologist, a psychotherapist at that time, or no? Uh, I was, and I, I, I still continued to work at that. I actually was, in addition to having a private practice, I was managing a mental health facility in Queens, and I had to take a leave of absence from that job because I became the, in, the, the general contractor of my own home. So we wanted right. to make sure we restored this home back to its uh, original glory. It was built in 1899, so it was a Victorian home. It had all the uh, stained glass windows, the, the, the beautiful flooring, and, and all, the, all the things you would see in that kind of a home. So I had to uh, budget and hire the contractors to re redo the house, and so I would, that was my, pretty much my full-time job. My part-time job was, was seeing clients in the evening. Wow, that's that's and and you did that for you worked as a uh, psychotherapist until you got into the corporate world. Is that what happened? Uh, well, as I uh, continued my career as a psychotherapist, I I was working with a lot of uh, executives and a lot of entrepreneurs, and I was always fascinated with the psychology of entrepreneurship and why do some entrepreneurs succeed and and others not, and right. that passion sort of led me into starting to consult with companies in the early 80s. I had an opportunity to begin to do some consulting with some small, mid-sized companies, some nonprofits, and began to t take what I learned about psychology and the psychology of entrepreneurs and transfer it into uh, consulting to businesses on how to see resources and use those resources to, to grow their business. And that eventually led you into... Uh working with corporations on a more frequent basis, and uh, eventually you gave up the private practice? Yeah, I, I did um, do private practice psychotherapy and consulting to corporations and entrepreneurs for both. I did both for a period of about 10 years, and I decided in 1997 that I wanted to be truly great at something, and I could not be great at those two professions. So I, after 20 years as a psychotherapist, I retired from that. I learned so much about working with people and particularly working with um, entrepreneurs. And really we focused on, on entrepreneurial companies and divisions of larger companies. And, you know, that was really what we've been doing since then. And we've learned so much about why certain companies succeed. So we studied the success in companies. And we found that there's a DNA of success in every single company, the really great companies have a strong culture of success and they repeat doing the same things well and they're continually learning new things and building upon their success. The companies that fail are companies that don't repeat their success. They actually have some me, success, but they don't repeat right. it. Let me ask you something before we get into that in greater detail. I had a question for you. What do you think motivates people the most? In a corporate you say, Are you talking about employees? Are you talking about the owners, the entrepreneurs, yeah. no, the managers? What do you think what do you think is the most important thing that really motivates employees? Well, I think there's three 
really important things. One is I think every employee wants to create something or be part of creating something that makes a difference. And they want to see that their skills and what, they're, what they care about are somehow used to improve something, whether it's the customer's experience, whether it's another employee's experience, whether it's um, you know, making a product, uh, developing a service. I think everybody has a passion to use what they do well in a good purpose in the world. Um, I think the second thing that people have is they want to be part of a team. I think people are naturally social. They're naturally um, drawn to tribes and groups where they can connect and collaborate. And I think the, the, the best companies have a team and collaborative environment as well as the, the ability of the individual to create something that's unique to, to her or to him. Uh, and the, the third thing is I think people do want some sort of stability that they can feel like they have a place to go to, they have a job which brings them enough income to be able to live the rest of their life. And I think that's important to them as well. Now, do you think that uh, these three factors, let me ask you something. Uh, from your experience in working with corporations, that type of uh, corporate environment, does that exist in what percentage of companies today in the United States, if you were to have hazard a guess? Obviously, it's not a scientific uh, Answer. You know, I think, Robert, it's um, really not – I couldn't answer that question in terms of an entire company because you have large uh, multinational, you know, global conglomerate companies that have let, – let's take, take General Electric, which one is the largest, one of the largest companies in the world. They have some incredibly innovative entrepreneurial units. Some, some things are doing with healthcare, very innovative healthcare in India and other um, developing countries. Their wind power division is extremely innovative in the environmental space. And I, I think there's some employees there that are extremely uh, motivated by their ability to make a difference. Then they have other divisions of their companies that are doing things that are less socially conscious and, and less creative and innovative. So I don't think you can say it's one company, uh, particularly a large company, it's across the board in, in a company. I think where you're going to see the job growth is in small entrepreneurial companies. When we talk about a corporation, you know, a corporation essentially it's a, it's a legal tax status. Right. So you can have a corporation of one person and you can have a corporation of uh, a million people. And right. we can't really talk about them in the same way because a corporation of 10 people operates very differently than a corporation of 10,000 or 100,000. Sure. Now, do you think that um, much of the growth is going to be uh, generated by these smaller entrepreneurial companies because there's less bureaucratic uh, restrictions for them and they could really, you know, the, the lead time from developing an idea to actually doing a product and service is it should be conceivably much less and there should be less restrictions on creativity. Um, that is generally true. Um, they they can be more flexible. They can be more nimble and responsive. They often have less overhead so they can do things that um, larger companies can't. However, that being said, if you take a company like Google, which now I think has something like 33,000 employees, they are extremely entrepreneurial. They have hundreds of teams that are developing new products. They give most of their employees one full day a week to work on whatever they want on their own time, and that uh, one day a week has turned into incredible Google products like Google Maps and some of the other Google applications that, that came from that freedom. So Google sort of broken the mold of a large corporation in terms of, of how entrepreneurial it is, even at its larger 
scale. Right. And I think Which those is, models are, you know, that that model is going to be replicated because people see how successful, you know, Google is. And it, it actually puts smaller companies out of business every year because the smaller companies are not as innovative and, and as creative as Google has, has been in many cases. Right. Uh, you know, Google is certainly one of the, one of the, uh, the high-growth companies that you mentioned a few moments ago, you know, when you, when you were talking about uh, uh, cultures in, in corporations that have been, you know, quite innovative since 2008. Uh, and I certainly agree with you there. So, uh, so what are some of the other findings that, uh, that you could say uh, really impressed you when you decided in 1997 to work more with corporations? And uh, I assume you got into uh, management, strategic planning, and consulting at that point more on a full-time basis. Yeah, we, we exactly right. And what we learned was that the companies that were the most able to deal with adversity and the most able to continue to grow no matter what the external economic environment were the companies that had leadership were, who were committed to improving themselves as leaders and as people. And they set the tone and created uh, themselves as role models to be able to understand that um, being humble is an important value, listening well, getting other people's ideas, not competing with your own staff, but, but allowing them to be stars in your own company. Um, that was a, sort of a hallmark of the kind of culture that was able to continue to grow and innovate and change no matter what the economic environment was. Um, the success DNA concept that we've developed is every company, as I was saying earlier, has a certain pattern of success. And when they know what that pattern is and they continually adapt it and improve it, those are the companies that tend to really continue to succeed in the long run. The companies that fail don't know actually why they've succeeded when they succeed. So when a new opportunity comes along, they have no way to evaluate whether it actually is good for them. So our model at the Opportunity Lab is to uh, help companies have a specific way to discover opportunities evaluate them to see if they're right for their company at that point in time, and then launch them in a very efficient and, and powerful way. So we call it discover, evaluate, and launch the right opportunities to keep growing in any economy. Now, um, as I understand it, it's a two-month process in the Opportunity Lab. Is that correct? That's correct. So could you take us through some of the steps in that process and and uh, inform us as to, um, you know, how many people in a company normally go through the process? You know, what percentage do you need to really make a difference in the overall uh, culture of the company? All right. I want to take you through the process. While I do that, I want to make sure that all of our listeners – understand that this process can also be adapted for an individual because I, I don't want people to leave saying, oh, you know, that's a great process, but I'm a person, I'm not a company, how does this apply to me? Because we think the process of the Opportunity Lab is actually a process that can be used for an individual employee, a professional, or an entrepreneur starting up a company. So let's go through it and then okay. um, I'm, I'm happy to take your questions. So the okay. first step is defining the results that your company or you as an individual want to accomplish in a particular time frame. So let's say you're a company, you have to decide how are you going to measure whether you're successful. So typically 
you start with sales. How many, you know, how many dollars in, in sales are we going to, you know, accomplish this particular year over the next two years? Uh, typically, profit is a is a, um, a metric that companies use, but you need to go beyond those two typical metrics because you need to make sure you're strategic and you're continuing to improve in the areas that create those sales and profits. So, customer satisfaction is often a measurement that's used. Uh, employee satisfaction is often an important measurement. A product development that you're developing the the products that your customers want and that are going to be you know innovative and competitive in the marketplace. Uh, technological improvements, um, internal operational improvements, so you're being more efficient and you're keeping your costs down. Whatever your results are, and if it's in your personal career, you want to define you know the kind of job you want to have, the kind of work that you want to do, the financials. Uh, situation you want to have, etc. So you get the you get the results first, <clears throat> and then the second thing is we create an opportunity team, which is typically three to five people from inside the company who the company wants to <clears throat> be charged with seeing opportunities, evaluating them, and launching them. And then we really encourage our clients to get people from outside their company to join this opportunity team. And those outside people can be clients, they can be vendors, they can be board members or investors or thought leaders in their field. So for the individual who's trying to launch their own business or jumpstart their career, you want to make sure you are involved with, with people who are helping you do what you do and you're helping them. Okay? Well, that so makes in a business, perfect. Yeah, that makes perfect. Yeah, because we really got to stop trying to do things alone it's not the way things work anymore, and we've got to realize it's really about um, helping people and having them help us and really you know, co-creating rather than competing. Okay, so you got your results. You have your opportunity team, which are people inside your organization and outside, and if it's you, it's you and the people who you want to surround yourself with. And then we study success. We create the success DNA. We look at the six most successful projects that you have accomplished in the last, let's say, two years. And we draw a map of what were the conditions that existed inside your organization or if you're an individual inside you and in the marketplace when you had these successes. <clears throat> and when you see the map, it's very, very powerful to see that when you had the thing, the failures, you compare the successes with the failures, you see typically what happens when you failed, you didn't stay on your success pattern. You didn't really go with what works and adapt and grow from what works. You tried an opportunity that either wasn't in your skill set, wasn't, um, you didn't have the resources for it, you weren't willing to commit the time for it, or there wasn't really buy-in to it from the people you're working right. with. All right? So business results, opportunity team, success DNA, and then we do something really innovative. We map the resources in your world or in your ecosystem. So we have a resource mapping process which starts with the people. We map the people in your world which are the connectors, the experts, and the accelerators, different types of people. Connectors are people who have large social networks. Experts are people who are expert in their field. And accelerators are really, really special kind of people who are kind of a unique combination of experts and connectors, and they're the kind of people that can, they can make something happen real quick. They can get the right people in the room for you and ask the right questions and launch stuff really fast. So you want to identify who your accelerators are because they are really, really powerful assets to you. Then you map the organizations you're affiliated with, the markets you do business in, 
the capital sources where you get money from, the technology that you have access to, the knowledge and the communications, which communications are you know, social media, your website, uh, your press, the various ways you communicate with the world. <clears throat> and when you see your resources on a map, it's incredibly powerful that you are able to visualize the assets that you really don't think about on a daily basis because they're not visible to you, and therefore, if they're not visible, they're not actionable for you. And right. so very often opportunities come right out of that mapping process where people go, oh, my goodness, I, I keep forgetting that we're a member of this organization. We don't really use them enough. Or I keep forgetting my, mem my friend Robert Fisher is an incredible resource. He has an incredible radio show that I could possibly be on. Or he's an expert in, you know, in money abundance, and I want to tap his brain on that. You know? we, we get those opportunities that come from the visualization um, from the mapping process. Okay, so now we've got the business results the opportunity team, the success DNA, the resource map, and now we say to the company, what would be the greatest possible year of 2012 that you can imagine? What are the opportunities you would create if you realize your company had its greatest potential? And so the team brainstorms 25 different opportunities of all sorts, you know, uh, customer opportunities, sales opportunities, partnership opportunities, product, technology opportunities, you know, you can go on and on. So obviously no organization has the capacity to implement 25 opportunities in one year. So now you put them through the filter, which we call the opportunity filter. And each step of the filtering process, and an individual can do this as well, is first question is will it impact your business results within the particular amount of time you want it to? So Typically for a company, it's a year or two. For an individual, it might be shorter. If it's something like, I need to get a job real fast, it might be six months. Whatever that time frame is, can I, will this impact the results that I want to achieve in the time frame I need to achieve it? The second filter is, do I have the history of success in my success DNA that I could actually do this? Would I be good at this opportunity? Do we have the competencies and, and the... Um, experience to get this thing done. And then the third question is, do we have the resources on our map to be able to make this thing real and make it work? And the last question is, is my team on board? The other people that I'm working with, do they believe in this opportunity? Would they buy into it? Would they help me with it? Those 25 opportunities get filtered down through that process, and let's say there's three or four that get to the bottom of that filter. Those are the ones you focus on. And focus is a really important um, element of the Opportunity Lab. And we think it's a very important element today for everybody's success, whether you're a company or an individual. If you are not focused, you can so easily be distracted by Facebook, by Twitter, by watching television, by going out, doing whatever you are doing. If you don't eliminate those distractions and you wake up every morning saying, I know exactly what I need to do today to move my opportunities forward, you won't well, get could you there. give us some uh, some incentive and some idea as to uh, some tools that you've developed to help people focus? Um, sure. The the first and the easiest and the cheapest and the most time proven tool that I have that I use every day is simply meditation, or you want to call it quiet time. Um, I wake up in the morning before I start my day. I just sit quietly for five minutes, and I just reflect on how I'm feeling gratitude for what I have in my life, what I want to create for that particular day, what I need to focus on, and whatever happens to come to me in that quiet time. Um, and I typically do that 
when I wake up in the morning, one time during the middle of the day or the beginning of the evening, and then before I go to bed at night. And well, having, I can tell you that I, I totally embrace that. In fact, uh, I meditate for about 30 minutes a day, mm-hmm. and I've been doing a very special meditation for the last three months, almost four, and it's going to end on April 15th, which is no mm-hmm. coincidence at time. And mm-hmm. uh, it's amazing what uh, doing that on a regular basis can do to your perspective. It's just unbelievable. So what are some of the results you've gotten from that um, discipline of meditation? Well, I, I, you know, actually before I started this very specific meditation, because I, I've been taking Kundalini Yoga for the last year and a half, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of meditation as part of that practice, and this was one that was handed out by one of my yoga teachers, mm-hmm. uh, specifically designed for 120 days. And I could tell you that, and the audience, that when I first started doing it, I thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this for 31, it's actually 31 minutes a day. So I'm not going to be able to do this. And then when I started doing it and I did it for a few days, it was in the first couple of days, I would say the results were incredibly dramatic. And it's almost as if a window opened in my mind, in my consciousness that had previously not been there. And it gave me another way of evaluating basically everything that happens in my life, another mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. which I process the information going on around me. I consider that to be invaluable. Absolutely. And and it is very powerful. And it is very simple. It's just a matter of discipline. That's the the hard part is having the discipline to do it the way you've done it, you know, which which obviously you're getting that great results because you've been really disciplined with doing it. Right. And uh, I'm not going to stop doing meditation when 120 days are over. I'm going to switch to other meditations that I'm aware of. Uh, because I'm I'm just so impressed with it, uh, you know. Uh, and you know, another thing I'd like to tell the listeners what meditation has done for me is, uh, you know, we sometimes think that what we perceive with our senses is it that that's all there is in this world. But I've come to believe that what we perceive, like with our eyes, with our ears, the sense of smell, taste, is a very limited. Um, a limited portion of what's really going on around us, and meditation opens you up to the potential of a lot of other things going on that before you do it, you weren't even aware that they were going on. It's it's just incredible. Yep. Well, great. Well, thanks for kind of giving an additional endorsement for that. And I know we don't have too much time left, so let me give you one one more tool that okay. we use a lot is what we call you know program your own media. Uh, to me, media, which is radio, television, you know, Facebook, um, email, Internet, is really like nutrition, like food. You know, you are what you eat and you are what you consume in the media. So if you are um, watching shows that have a lot of um, negativity to it, a lot of um, Absolutely. can't do this, can't do that, if you've got a lot of commercials and you're being sold things, you know, all the time, if you're on things that really in the end don't really mean that much to you, then you're not putting into your consciousness the kind of things that will help you get to where you want to go. So, Mark, let me so just programming media is... is 60 yeah. seconds. Let me just add that, that also program the people you surround yourself with because you absorb the energy of all the people that are close to you. That includes friends and loved ones. And if you have a very negative person in your life, it's going to be virtually impossible to not absorb that energy if you're around them all the time. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. And so that that's the opportunity team. You know, put together an opportunity team if you're in a company or if you're an individual that supports what you do and are people who are positive and can, you know, appreciate you and you can appreciate them. Uh, I want to just mention our website, theopshow.net. Um, you can get a lot of great resources from it, theopshow, O-P-P, S-H-O-W.net, theopshow.net. And if you want some more information about anything we do, if we can help you in any way, share some of these tools with you, you can email us at discover at oplab.com. Discover at oplab, O-P-P-L-A-B.com. Mark, we've run out of time. I want to thank you so much for a most interesting uh, chat and interview. And uh, I want to thank our listeners here at Monergy Life. Mark, as well as our listeners, have a great evening. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Robert. Good night. Good night.